Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Hi there and welcome to Tech Radio, the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you news and tech from around Ireland and across our fine planet of Earth. Remember, you can hear uh, Tech Radio on air with RTE Friday evenings or anytime you like with your favourite podcasting app from Apple, Google or Spotify. Uh, We also keep you bang up to date daily on all things tech with hourly updates, daily newsletters as well. You can grab those for free at techcentral.ie. My name is Dusty Rhodes. This is episode 857 and joining me as always is our editor-in-chief Niall Kitson. Uh, Niall, last time we spoke last week we were kind of eagerly awaiting uh, Perseverance, the the latest Mars rover to land on the planet. Did you did you sit down and watch it live? I didn't watch it live, but you know what? If you had an Oculus Rift, you could have, and you would have had a full VR view. Isn't that kind of cool? It you would have cool. been in the control room and had a full look around and see what's going on. Now, I mean, of course, you're not going to get into consoles or anything like that. You're you're off to the side and sort of the the public gallery end of things. Mm-hmm. But uh, how great is that that you you can place yourself in that in that exact moment uh, and see people going absolutely mm-hmm. nuts because you know it it landed in the um in the in the crater of the lake and and didn't break. So you know that's kind of cool. It is very cool, and at the risk of sounding like a complete nerd, uh, that is exactly what I did. Did you? I did. Yeah, I've got. Well, I've got the Samsung uh, um, uh, virtual reality, um, and uh, I was able to watch it like that. And it was just kind of weird sitting on your couch, and you literally are sitting in the control room and looking around at, at, at things as they happen. But, anyways, um, I was slightly disappointed with it because I was hoping for this. This is me expecting big things of technology. I was hoping for a live video feed from the rover as it was dropping down into onto the surface of Mars, and we didn't get that. Okay. What we got was uh, the live view from the control room and then they did a simulation and stuff like that uh, and they had graphs about what was happening at any given time and then shortly after it arrived they were able to show a photograph. It had taken a photograph. You wanted to be plugged into that lander. Uh, absolutely. But they've done videos since and you should look them on uh, at them on YouTube. It's absolutely fascinating. All of the video recordings of the landing actually came in from multiple angles and everything. And that in itself is like, you know, wow. <laughs> but the uh, story that came out in the, in the last few days, and I just thought it was lovely, uh, was that somebody had figured out that the parachute that slowed down the rover as it was about to uh, land on the planet actually had some binary code built into it uh, with a secret message. And somebody worked it out, I believe it was in France or something like that. Uh, uh, they, they worked it out. And the message that was written on the parachute in binary code was Dare Mighty Things. Dare Mighty Things. Now, we're all used to Easter eggs in software where if you do this or do that. But I mean, is that not the Easter egg of all Easter eggs? Yeah, it is actually. Beautiful. I loved it. It was from a quote from, uh, I think it was Roosevelt, one of the presidents. Yeah, Theodore a, Roosevelt. Yeah. Now, yeah. I mean, that's not me plucking that out of the air and going, check, check out how much you know. I've just Googled it. Ah, good man. <laughs> uh, the uh, the actual quote, well, I won't read you the full quote, but it, it basically what he was saying, it's, it's much better to dare mighty things and to win huge triumphs, even though they're checkered by failure, than to just sit there and do nothing. That was his quote. So dare mighty things, I thought was a, was a fantastic that's, thing. That's good Anyways, advice to live by. 
That was so last week. Uh, This week, it's all about Facebook uh, taking on Australia and losing is what some people are saying. Uh, No, no, no. That depends who you ask. For me, I'm chalking this down as a win for uh, Australia. Um, If you look at last week, we were talking about Facebook's less than surgical effort to uh, take down news sources from Australia, because as you know, the Australian government said, uh, no, Facebook, you're using you know, stuff from Australian media, we're going to pass a law that's going to actually make you, it's going to compel you to pay media producers, pay content producers um, for the material that you are letting people share on your platform that you're basically making money from. Uh, To which Facebook said, well, no, we don't like that idea very much. So we're going to block access to Australian um, locally produced content and, uh, you know, see how you get on without that. Uh, And of course, they ended up blocking granted, you know, local news stations and that sort of thing, but also things like the Met Office, things like charities, things like helplines, things that actually make the news or are part of the news, but aren't necess- but aren't news as such on their own. So it was a pretty ham-fisted response. So this week, said law was passed, but we found out that Google was actually making moves towards set, uh, certain uh, content providers like News Corp. Um, to come up with some sort of arrangement already. Facebook came out and said, well, look, we had a chat with the government. We won some concessions. We're, we're happy enough to proceed with negotiations now, and um, probably with the, the same organizations as, as it happens. News Corp and Nine, I think, are, are, are the two main players in this. And yeah, as far as I'm concerned, that, that's a win for media producers. That's a win for publishers. It's a win for Australia. And I think globally, it's a win for, uh, for the media industry as well, because we're going to see this, this laboratory of, okay, how can publishers get paid for stuff that, you know, big tech gets paid, you know, uh, can make money off, you know, and how will that work out logistically? And can we scale this kind of solution to work on a global level? Uh, I'm very excited to see how this works. Um, my guess is it's going to be made look like the most difficult thing in the world when it's probably not going to be. Well, on one hand, you know, Facebook are kind of saying, well, we can't control the content that's on our platform. Yet on another, they're going into Myanmar and they're going, well, no, we're not going to allow you on and we're not going to allow you on and, and, and so on and so forth. And in the States, they're going to go, well, we're kicking that group off and we're not going to let him talk. So, yeah, I, I think you're right there. They're going to make a, a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, the press in Australia, which is essentially Rupert Murdoch, have been very bullish about it. And a friend of mine who lives in Brisbane uh, saw the headline on his local newspaper, the Courier Mail, which is a a Murdoch paper. And the headline was stunning. All right. Okay. Uh, It had a picture of Mark Zuckerberg. All right. Mm -hmm. And the headline said, and this is a long paragraph. All right. But I will tell you where the, the, the big print was. Right. Essentially, the headline said, Facebook is planning a change which will allow paedophiles on its messenger service to escape detection. Australian police will lose up to 20,000 tip-offs a year about suspected child abuse. Kids will suffer horrendously. Predators won't be caught. But our authorities cannot convince the social media giant to change its mind. Does this make Mark Zuckerberg, and then in huge writing, the most callous man in the world? My goodness. Now, you know, kind of, if you're going to take a position, that's one hell of a way to do it. (laughs) They don't mince their words down there, do they? Uh, No, they don't. I I love, I I love Australia because it's just so in your face. Uh, So like in the cinemas, okay. 
uh, Tuesday is not a great night for going out to the cinema. Who goes out on a Tuesday night? Well, back in the days when we went out, but who went out on a Tuesday night? So they did a special offer on Tuesday nights to encourage people to come in and watch movies for half price. And they called it Tight Ass Tuesday. <laughs> I think it's great. Do you right. know what? Australia scarred me for life. Do, do you remember the um, road safety ads that the American government put out in the 90s? I, I remember uh, somebody called Judge, a white puppety kind of a thing, Wanderly Wagon or something. Hmm. Beyond that, Green Cross Code was another one, I think, from the, from the UK. Uh, the, the Australians, uh, they, they, they had it down. They had, they had the on. most gruesome the most gruesome road safety ads. They would scare you straight. What do they do that put the creeps up a baby Nile? Oh my goodness. No, I'm not even going to describe it. Like, but it was, it okay. was horrible. I mean, it put you <laughs> off motoring, let alone, you know, make you a responsible driver. Like it, it, it's really scary. stuff. I'm sure they're all up on YouTube. Um, go look for them. Don't go look for them. Um, yeah, you can see. You can, yeah, that's you see how it goes on that front. Listen, uh, just kind of thinking about the Mars story again there for a second. One of the key things about getting that lander onto the planet was that it was using artificial intelligence. And it was Mm -hmm. basing kind of, it knew where it was going to go, but it didn't know exactly where it was going to land. So they had loaded on maps onto the rover and then they had also uh, put cameras on it. So it was able to kind of compare what it was seeing with the cameras with the map and then find the best place to land. Yeah. Now, that is an extreme example of artificial intelligence. And the reason I'm saying that is because our interview this week is all about artificial uh, intelligence and virtual reality. You were chatting with uh, Elaine Howey, who is the artist in residence at the Digital Hub. You found the conversation fascinating, yeah? Uh, I did, yeah. It's always interesting to see how technology is being applied in different fields. We're used to hearing about, you know, the the business end of things, the the startups, you know, the the gadgets as they come Mm. along. So it's wonderful to see people approach technology from a completely different way, looking at technology as an artistic medium instead of something to, to solve a problem, you know. Yeah, yeah. And typically, like, you know, when you're thinking virtual reality or artificial intelligence, you think of gaming or uh, or manufacturing as well and stuff like that. But I mean, the arts is kind of like something you don't. And many people who do kind of get into it usually come up with a background in, you know, kind of tech or business. Uh, but as Elaine, who we listen to now, explained to Niall, uh, she came up through teaching. That's right. Yes. Um I uh, was a teacher for 13 years. I worked with early school leavers and uh, I worked very much in the realm of community arts practice. And I had zero um, sort of relationship with technology. I mean, I'd use Photoshop, but I don't know if that actually counts as technology. So, um, yeah, I I basically came with zero experience. um, And it was a, a kind of a steep learning curve to sort of start engaging with this type of technology that was almost alien to me. I mean, I didn't even grow up with the internet. So, um, and here I am, you know, doing live performance on the internet. So I suppose it's always um, interesting how people's kind of journeys kind of navigate through or, or their interests kind of are piqued by certain things and they don't realize that that is actually something that, could be significant in their lives. Um, my kind of interest in technology, I, I went back to do a BA 
in the National College of Art and Design. And I decided to take a stream on media and absolutely loved it. Um, loved working with computers. And um, then I went to New York and uh, went to the Samsung shop and tried the Samsung gear. And uh, that was it. That was my love affair with VR started. A very simple kind of accident almost that I sat in a chair and was transported uh, above the skyline of New York. And I knew there was something there about this technology that would be very, very interesting to investigate in a, within an artistic practice. So moving from there, when you when you had that aha moment of putting on the galaxy gear and going, oh, right, OK, here's something that I can use to explore these problems. Did you look to uh, address any particular issues or any particular subjects you were interested in? Or was it a case of, OK, let's sit down and play around with some wireframes or, or play around with, with some graphics and see what I can come up with? I suppose coming from a community arts background, you know, and a more socially engaged practice, um, I think my my fundamental interest is not necessarily in the technology, but actually in our interaction with the technology, what it can tell us about ourselves as human beings. And I think that always is in the back of my mind when I'm using this technology, knowing that there's an end user, but also that... It's not about, yes, the, the, the technology allows this other experience to take place, but actually for me, it's a very human, it has to be a very human experience. And I think one of the first works I made in VR was called The Weight of Water. And I'd worked with a group in Kerry who were um, working with, the, with refugees that were coming in from Greece. And uh, they, I, I kind of worked with, some um, refugees within that organization and they told me their story and I, I suppose that at the time when I began making the way to water it was for my degree show and I was realizing these images were coming through the screen every day and they were quite you know it was one of the biggest kind of humanitarian disasters you know within the last decade and I also realized this kind of relationship that we were having with the screen, our ability to kind of look away or avert our gaze. And I thought this technology doesn't allow you to do that. It kind of puts you kind of within that or implicates you in a narrative in a different way than kind of viewing the screen will do. So I could see the power of this technology and that kind of mediated presence experience, you know, where you're kind of, you feel like you're, you're somewhere you, you are there. So I thought the kind of the medium allowed me to kind of, I suppose, uh, present a narrative that or, or and a real world narrative that was happening in a very um, kind of, I suppose, where you couldn't look away that, that, that the work was was going to force you to watch it, no matter where you look in, in something like VR, it's 360, you are, you are engaged within the kind of screen itself. Um, so I, I think that the power of that technology to um, expand narratives in a, a psychological, physiological as well, and um, sort of really human way is quite powerful. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting quirks of virtual reality is is kind of how easy it is to immerse somebody into uh, an environment or whatever and take away so much of their control using technologies that they're actually probably more used to using to control a character on on a screen, for example, dipping into the likes of gaming or or such. how did you find working with that overlap of sort of dealing with people, you know, who, who may be, you know, games professionals or, you know, coming to, towards VR with, with sort of a, a gaming mindset? Do, do you look at this as sort of going, OK, look, gaming has been doing all this. Let's try something else. I think that I think that's you've hit the nail on the head there. I think that's yes, I love you know, I think gaming has its place in the world. It's very, uh, you know, we've all grown up, we've all grown up with gaming and the ability to kind of use. And I, I suppose what it is really is that within, you know, artists are always looking at um, existing systems and structures that are in place and kind of making, you know, taking that technology and trying to do something else with it. And I think that's ultimately um, what I wanted to do was to say, you know, this this can have something serious attached to it. It doesn't have to be there just purely to entertain you. I, I think as well, when I was doing my, my degree, I had done a, <coughs> my thesis on virtual reality itself. And kind of when I began to investigate the technology, it has a quite a uh, a serious background, you know, it wasn't kind of used for gaming. It was used for industrial remote robotics and NASA used it and it was used for psychotherapy and it was used for very serious kind of business related or medical related. Um, it was also used obviously by the military. So it had a very serious background and I knew that I suppose that that aspect of it was still there, you know, whether the gaming, I suppose the gaming industry is a massively kind of funded industry and, it, the, you know, it's a perfect fit for that world. But it, but it, it historically, it's a very, very serious technology and it's a effect on the body is also quite serious. So I think those aspects of it kind of attach to me, the more historical aspects of VR interest me in relation to why this was being used in the first place. If that answers your question, you <laughs> made a mention of the no. You made mention of the body there as being sort of a, an, a, an important site of, uh, um, I guess, exploration in virtual reality. And I've noticed that the body the body plays a, a very prominent role in your work, whether it's you know an actor on the other end of an installation to work with, or to take an example of a blueprint for a virtual nomad, where you're you're surrounded by bodies basically uh, in, in this sort of 360 this is tech central where did that inspiration come from um i think because i i think i look at uh virtuality not necessarily in in one particular way it's I, I feel it's more research based so I'm constantly looking at how this technology is evolving and what it's being used for um, and I suppose that combined with my interest in technology in general but also how that's kind of manifested in something like cyberspace um, and the fact that we don't have bodies there yet we live part-time in 
in on the internet and we live in the real world. So the I suppose looking at something like VR and its ability to transcend that um that part where the body's disconnected from the space, even though it's not your own body, you can have a version of your body. Um, but it's looking at, I suppose, more about agency as well, you know, kind of where wanting to give the person who's in the VR uh, a level of agency of their own. Um, but also looking at the ability for this technology to allow me to go into a virtual world and meet somebody from China or meet somebody from Norway and, you know, go to an open mic night with them in Japan. So it's a very, I suppose that part of it really fascinates me and how, um, particularly in regards to kind of social VR on the internet, how that's kind of uh, beginning to emerge. And uh, I suppose for me as an artist, while I can't afford to build my own private platform to develop um, live performance work, I am interested in um, looking at existing sites. You know, there was a whole host of artists who made work around places like Second Life. And, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, places like VR Chat that are emerging now as kind of really interesting sites for artists to begin to examine that relationship with the body and the self and identity, particularly around identity politics, have become, as you probably know, massive on the internet. Um, and in the real world, but um, probably started on the internet. Um, so those kind of questions are all very kind of interesting to me. Um, and also kind of pushing the boundaries, you know, being experimental about what you do in regards to the nature of um, VR, you know. So even within uh, an experience that's not live, you you still have a sense that there's a body there, you know, the body will always be present. There's, um, you know, I don't know if you know, Catherine Hales, who wrote uh, a book about kind of post-humanism. She would always argue that the body is always present, even if it's absent in the virtual space. Now there's a body at some point in the equation. So I think, um, yeah, I think that, to bring it back to the human aspect of the technology is always very interesting. What is happening within the human part of that interaction with the technology itself? Another challenge to humanity from technology uh, comes in the form of artificial intelligence. Now, at the moment, uh, when you talk to people about AI, be it in manufacturing or medicine, they will say that AI is uh, an aid to decision making. You know, it's it's not the, the actual agent of change. It's just something that's there to inform you to help make a better decision. Um, how do you see AI fitting into the artistic world? Because I imagine creativity being such an ephemeral thing to have uh, a facility come back and say, do, do you know what, here's a, a much more logical way of doing things. Um, how do you feel that the two kind of mix together or do they at all? Um, oh, they do. They, well, within, I suppose, new media art in particular, I mean, it is definitely an emerging field um, that artists are beginning to examine. Um, in as a part of my residency in the Digital Hub, we're developing in collaboration with the National College of Art and Design, we're de- developing a talk series 
that will investigate um, our relationship with kind of technology itself. But uh, uh, part of that is a, a kind of four or five talk series that will look specifically at artificial intelligence, things like the ethics of AI and uh, biases and kind of inherent biases that are built into systems. Um, and I think from my perspective, I'm very interested in the more feminist aspects of that, you know, particularly within biases that are built in to things like models that, are, that, that AI is trained on. So I do think that there are some inherent kind of problems with artificial intelligence that I think art will pose questions to, will we'll kind of investigate, but in more sort of raising kind of critical questions around our relationship with AI. And I think it's important that we don't just accept AI because of fundamentally how it's made. You know, it's, it's trained on models, but that data has to come from somewhere and someone has to design that data. So who owns that data? Where is it coming from? And um, who who is making the decisions around what that is ethically saying? Is it, you know, I suppose it's it's questions of perspectives and ownership over things like models and data that AI being trained on. That is very um, kind of interesting. But also there's questions around surveillance, around, I suppose I'm using things like deep fakes within my practice at the minute and I'm interested in, in, you know, in the relationship where did that start, you know, that started out of sort of being used as a, a weapon in, in regards to kind of porn shaming women on the internet. And that became a huge trend for a while. So it's kind of, yes, while business and um, medicine will have a, a kind of a set or parameters, there will always be people who will want to use it in, in kind of, I suppose, more destructive ways. And I think that's, that's worth questioning. So I, I suppose the likes of virtual worlds and AI are, have really opened up a, an important discussion space and I suppose created um, a space for big, big tech, if you will, to start looking at the, uh, the impacts of their to their own technology. I think Facebook is a, a particular victim in this regard. They, they really have become the monster, really, haven't they? Um, in one sense, yes. Um, and I, I, I do think, well, I actually don't know for, for definite, but there is an, uh, an aspect to where you, you know, you see Google releasing their algorithm in whatever it was, you know, their TensorFlow in 2016, but not really, you know, once it's kind of released into the public, you don't really know what's going to happen to it. And then not fully realizing the implications perhaps of what they're doing, um, you know, or how that's going to be kind of used. And also, um, you know, transparency and lack of regulation perhaps around a new emerging technology that is as powerful as AI. Um, and I think that's something that will begin to happen in the next, you know, five years where it will be become much more regulated. And there are calls from people within that industry to regulate, re- regulate something like artificial intelligence. I remember, um, a friend of mine, he was working for Google and 
he was in California, he came back and he said, oh my God, I've just seen this kind of system that actually scares the hell out of me, you know, and it's this algorithm that can, that basically recreates the internet of me, you know, and I was going, what do you mean? And he went, yeah, it's going to like, it's going to feed you exactly what you want. So it's going to, you know, target ads towards you. It's going to politically, you know, give you what you need. You're going to be in an echo chamber. And um, here we are, you know, five years later, and it's kind of, it's very, very fast kind of come into, it's it's manifested itself into, you know, where the internet, which was once a space that would have been largely open has now become very closed. So there are kind of really kind of real world implications, you know, um, whether it's true you know, whether it's political or social or cultural kind of shifts that are happening through something like AI, they have profound effects. You know, you you have to look at the American elections to realize the effects of artificial intelligence on a political narrative um, to realize how serious it can be used or what it can be used for. And that was Elaine Hoey, artist in residence at the Digital Hub, chatting with Niall Kitson. That's it for our show this week. Do remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more from our website at techcentral.ie. Or, of course, you can listen to us each week online or Fridays on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes and from Niall Kitson, thanks so much for listening. And as always, have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by digitalaudioproductions.com. Tech Central.